All right, if you'd open in James 5, if you haven't done that already. I will be teaching down through verse 11 today. Obviously, as you look at your Bible, that's not the end of the chapter. But Danny did preach on those last verses in September. So if you want to hear a good message on that, or two messages, go to the podcast. September 23rd and 30th, you will hear uh, his message on that. So I'll, I'll finish up these verses, uh, which correlates what we talked about last week. The dangers of riches, and then today we'll look at the proper response uh, to trials. I'll read verse 7 down through 11. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, Behold, we consider them blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So now he talks about, now again, talking to specifically to believers, calling them brothers again, how to properly respond to trials. And he's been talking about this throughout the entire book. Really, James 1 and James 5 really are bookends to each other. So he kind of brings it back full circle to what he brought up in James chapter 1. But he talks about here, now this is your proper response to trials. In the beginning of the chapter, he says, the rich people are oppressing you, but how then do you res- respond to that? And as he does this in, in these verses we, I just read, he gives them two truths to remember. He gives them three pitfalls to avoid and then three examples to consider as we endure these trials. And so he starts out by saying one, one of these truths to remember, first of all, Jesus is coming back incredible truth for them to think about. Jesus is going to come back. This isn't permanent. I'm from Cleveland, from Cleveland. That's a good place to be from, not to live in. Cleveland rejoiced at the homecoming of LeBron, right? He left us once, now twice, but he (laughs) came back. He did finally come back for four years, and he brought us the championship we've been waiting for for over 50 years. But the city was just exuberant about that. I remember the day he left, I was sitting right about there in the middle, and all my brother texted me was Miami. And I thought, oh my word, really? He left us. And then I remember where I was when I got the text from my brother again saying he's back. And the whole city was so happy. He brought back economic wealth to, to Cleveland, and they estimate he brought back about a billion dollars worth to the city just by him coming back. This, the, the team did better. They're horrible again now that he's left again. But the city was just so happy for this homecoming. He returned, right? Longing for those four years while he was in Miami to come back, and he came back. People do that. We long for homecomings, don't we? So James reminds them Jesus is coming back. Even LeBron couldn't stop losing in Cleveland. But when Jesus comes back, losing will stop in Cleveland, finally. Right? But he reminds them Jesus is coming back. Remember this. As you're going through trials, this will end. Trials, sin, death will be brought to an end at the return of Jesus. But there's a temptation to think, well, he told them Jesus will return, but he didn't return in their, in their time. So is this promise invalid to them? Well, it's not. The promise of Jesus' return reminds us that this broken world will not always be this way. They're going through a difficult time, and he says, Jesus will come back. And we do live in, in a broken valley. 
Pastor Greg talked about that. We, we live in a very broken state. If you look to the people around us and think, is this really all that there is? You know, Monday, Friday night I was out with, with a police officer and we responded to a call where Salt Lake City Police had tased someone. So we went down there and the, the taser didn't work, so they ended up just beating the guy into submission because he was carrying a knife. And as I looked at the man, his blood all over him. Obviously he had been on drugs. I just looked at him and I thought, is this it? This man's broken, totally broken. There's so much sin, there's so much trial in this world. This man's been through a lot as we heard his story. If you think, is this it? Is this really it? So much strife and trial that goes in our lives. But he reminds them as these believers are encountering these trials, this isn't it. Jesus will come back and be hopeful for that. I love Romans 8, 18-25. He reminds us all that is broken and will be made right again. He says there in the, in the at first verse in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That hope. He says even the world, the earth itself is groaning to be changed to what it used to be. And we ourselves groan. Sometimes we actually do that out loud. We groan because our bodies aren't perfect. But he ends that passage by saying we wait for it, for this hope, patiently. And James reminds them, as Paul did in Romans, the same thing. We wait patiently for this. Jesus will return. And as he reminds them of here, that Jesus' return, they would encourage these brothers. And even though he didn't re- return in their lifetime, he reminded them that their trial would not overcome the victory that they had in Christ. They are brothers. They are believers. They have the gospel that has changed them. And so he reminds them, Jesus is coming back. You know, there are many of us in our church that are going through challenging, challenging times right now. Who have maybe come, just come out of them, who are just entering them right now. For those of us who are life is easier right now, we will go through challenges. We will go through trials. But it is a great comfort to know that Jesus knows and Jesus will return. And when he does return, he will make everything right. We call that return the blessed hope. It's a very appropriate name. That hope that we have that Jesus will come back to make things right. Now what is biblical hope like? I've shared this illustration before and you won't forget this. Hope biblically, or hope in the world sense of of thinking, right? We think, I have hope. It's like a University of Michigan football fan. We hope we have a good season, right? I won't say South Carolina. Okay, you're a guest. The University of Michigan, we hope. Maybe it'll happen, probably not. But we hope it will happen, right? Biblical hope is like being an Ohio State fan, like I am. It's a guaranteed reality. We hope we have a good season. It's going to happen, all right? You may hate my illustration, but I guarantee you won't forget my illustration. That is biblical hope. So that blessed hope that we have as believers, it's going to happen. Jesus will return. And we long for that day. But it makes trials bearable, knowing that the Father cares. The Spirit, while we are here on earth, is here to help. And the Son will return. And he starts out by saying, you are going through difficult trials. Jesus is coming back. Hope in that. But in light of Jesus' return, James gives three pitfalls to avoid as we undergo these trials. First of all, impatience. Now, I'll skip that one because we're all perfect at that, right? Not at all. Impatience. I read in a commentary on Friday morning, 
this, this commentator says, said this about patience. It is a virtue that does not readily flourish in the heart of natural man. To which we all respond, yeah, thank. Doesn't readily flourish in our hearts. Of course it doesn't. We are very impatient people. Patience is most difficult when things are not going well. When things are going just perfectly, well, we're, we're perfectly patient. But things are not going well for these brothers, and so reminds them, be patient until Jesus does return. How many of you had the perfect parenting week patience-wise? Or in your job? Or maybe now you're dealing with caring for your, your, your aging parents. You know, we, I told you we went, we went to St. George last week. Monday was a Monday in our family. Our kids did everything opposite of what we said to, to do. We went hiking, and we said, look, there are rocks. You cannot run. So what do they do? They run. And Logan trips over a rock and lands on another rock and screams and yells, as he does. And then we went back to where we were staying, and they had one of those old metal slides, which are really fun. But our kids decided to use it improperly, and we said, don't climb up the slide. You're meant to come down. So Laura and I go behind her sitting on a bench, and all of a sudden you see Logan fly off the side of the slide. And he was going up, and Reagan was coming down. Collision happened, and Logan lost and went flying off. And he didn't land on his feet. He landed on his face. And so I run back to our condo, got, got towels, and Laura's coming to me. Her hands are literally full of blood. I mean, he was bleeding like crazy. And so I'm getting him cleaned up in the shower. He has dirt. It was, it was sand where he landed on. He has dirt and sand in his mouth. And he says to me, this is punishment enough. <laughs> and I said, no, it's not. <laughs> You're going to get cleaned up, but there is going to be punishment, right? And I thought, at the end of the day, I'm like, put them to sleep. Just, if you're sleeping, you're going to be okay. But patience, we lose it. I lost it because I thought, at least our deductibles met, but man, seriously, kid, how many more times this year can you get hurt? Just would you just listen? But patience is difficult when we're going through situations like that. Why do we lose patience during challenging times of our lives? I think we have our own expectation of how fast something should happen or how fast we need it to happen. Yeah. My timing and needs to be done now. Who do we lose patience with when things are not going well? Often it's God. I think it's not my timing. Why don't you speed things up, God? Or he should care. In reality, he, he does care. We lose patience with other believers. Same thing, they should care about what I'm going through, well, as they do. If we're watching, they do. Also, the one inflicting that trial or that challenge upon us from a human perspective, and in this situation, it's the rich. They are oppressing the poor. They're dragging them into courts. They're treating them. They're defrauding them. But James says, be patient. Be patient with them. Patience is a lot easier if we know the outcome. But the reality is, reminds them, we do know the outcome. Jesus is coming back. So be patient. Patience displayed in challenging times produces sanctification in the life of the believer. We're going to go back to what the bookend, James 1. He says there in verse, th- uh, verse 3, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or patience, and let steadfastness have its full effect, may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So it reminds them this will lead to your sanctification, your growth in Christ. Be patient. 
And as we undergo trials, ask God that he would give us the ability to simply step back, observe what he is doing, experience patience, and then grow through that trial. So he says, be patient. Avoid this pitfall of trying to be impatient. Put on patience. Second of all, this wavering mindset. Avoid this as well. Again, we see what he refers to back in James chapter 1, verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. We're so prone to that, right? To go back and forth. I trust God. No, I don't trust God. I trust God. I don't trust God. He reminds him, don't have this wavering mindset. Be steadfast. This type of mindset is the inner resolve to endure trials. But don't think this is a kind of man up or pull myself up by my bootstraps, where I can do this if I simply try hard enough. It's not that mindset. It is a resolve with God's help to endure these trials. Paul writes about this in both Thessalonian letters. He writes about it in 1 Thessalonians 3. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he, God, may establish your hearts, blameless and holiness before our Father, our God and Father, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Second Thessalonians 2, he says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So Paul writes that this is God's steadfastness and God's word and in his work in our lives. But James says, you establish your heart. So we are tempted to think that this is my own ability to endure my own trials if I simply try hard enough and think hard enough. But James isn't saying the opposite of Paul. He's saying the exact same thing. James points to the reason we can have this resolve. He says there again, Jesus is coming back. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He's coming back, so establish your heart. Douglas Moo said this, this is the inner resolve, is the firm adherence to the faith in the midst of temptations and trials. When trials come, we can't wave in our mindset. James says to them simply, have steadfastness in your faith, the one in whom you have your faith. He is coming back for you. When the rich are oppressing you, he tells them, you don't lose faith. Beginning of five, they think, well, money will solve all these issues. He says, no, don't think that way. Have steadfastness in your faith in God. Keep the faith and remember that Jesus is coming back to make things right. The object of our faith, Jesus, enables us to resolve to keep our faith. If you have the right object for your faith, you will then be able to have steadfastness to keep the faith. So how does this apply to us as we're undergoing trials in our lives? Patience is the right response under trials. Here, steadfastness is the right mindset under trials. Remember that he's our savior and that he is coming back for us. He will make all things right. So have that right mindset, the steadfastness that he enables us to have. The third pitfall is then grumbling. Verse 9 seems to be out of place until we really, that's our normal reaction to trials. We complain. We grumble. We're frustrated with that. We would rather live our lives filled with easy days, quiet weeks, and worry-free years. But that's not life. Life is good, right? But life is hard. Life is very hard. And we're tempted to think when trials come, someone has to pay for me going through this. And it's not going to be me. 
And so we complain. We complain against God, but James says specifically here, you're, com- you're grumbling against one another. Isn't that our natural reaction? Even when Logan fell off that slide, what's my reaction? I complain. <laughs> Who put that here? Right? Who would make a metal slide where kids could fly off of it? We complain about things when things don't go our way. You know, sports teams do this. When, when things go wrong, what happens? Someone gets fired, right? We do this at work. When something doesn't go right, when, when the budget's not met, what happens? Someone has to go. Something, something has to change. When schools don't meet enrollment, something has to change to meet our expectations of what that was. In our churches, when expectations aren't met and they aren't fulfilled, something happens. We complain with each other. And our families do that as well. Think about what, what, what the people of Israel did. They wanted out of Egypt, so God produces Moses for them. He gets them out, and what do they say about him? You're our hero. And then what happens? They don't have food. You're an idiot. You brought us out here, right? Just that quickly, it changes. A trial comes to help them, and they say, God has got us out of Egypt. We love Moses, but as soon as he brings us out, we don't have food. Well, you're a jerk, man. Why'd you take us out of there? It was much better back there. Their natural response to trials was, I complain and I grumble. And again, we're reminded here in James 5 about the tongue. He's been talking about that over and over and over again in the book. And he says, don't use your tongue for evil. When trials come, don't grumble. Don't complain against one another. So what's the opposite? How can we use our tongue for good when trials come? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Yeah. It's kind of joy. How do we use our speech for good, specifically with, when we're dealing with one another through, going through these trials? Later he talks about <clears throat> using our tongues to pray for each other. Yeah, yeah. He gives a very vivid illustration right after this of how to do that specifically. To use it for good. Come alongside of each other to speak truth to each other in trials. Pray for each other. See how God is working in our lives through this trial. And remind ourselves that God does care and he does love us through these trials. So don't complain Rather, encourage each other. So James for the book gives real-life examples. So he's saying these are three pitfalls, but now he gives them three examples to consider. He does it again here in, in, at the very end of the book. First of all, farmers. Farmers exemplify patience, do they not? Now, I've grown up in cities my entire life, city of 8 million, and then in, in Cleveland and now here. I don't totally understand farming, but I know it takes a lot of time. Where I grew up in, in Northeast Ohio, there were a lot of farms near us, and, you, and you, that time goes on. And there's one farmer I remember specifically, he used even GPS to put the seed down. And you see him doing that at the beginning of the year, and then you think, tomorrow's a coming? And that takes a long time. And then finally, by 4th of July, it's, the corn is knee high by that point, at least you hope it is by that, by that point. And at the end, you see this, this flourish of crop. But it takes a lot of time. In what ways do farmers demonstrate patience? I found this, this list. He waits with reasonable hope and expectation of reward. He waits a long time, but he waits working all the while. He waits depending on things out of his own power with his eye on the heavens. He waits despite challenging circumstances and many uncertainties. He waits encouraged by the value of the harvest. He waits encouraged by the work and harvest of others. He waits because he really has no other option. 
He waits because it really does no good to give up. He waits aware of how good the seasons work. He waits because as time goes on, it becomes more important and not less to do so. Waiting and waiting and patience and patience. But there is a great reward for the farmer's patience. And that's the harvest, right? He waits and he waits and he waits. So James writes to, to his readers and saying, be patient. Look at the farmer. They are patient. They are waiting. They are still working. But they're waiting for that harvest. Likewise, there is a great reward for the patience of the believer. Growing more like Christ while we still remain here on earth. And that steadfastness that produces completeness, as he writes about in James 1. The reward of the return of Christ and then our ultimate glorification and enjoyment of Jesus for all of eternity. So there's a great reward. But look at the farmer, how he waits patiently for it. He's an example to consider. Second of all, the prophets. Isaiah was a great illustration of that, right? You see in Isaiah 6, he says, you're going to go speak, but they're not going to listen. Imagine me told that. This is your job description. Go talk, but no one's going to listen to you. But he still went. For 40 plus years, as we heard this morning, it's a long time. You'd be patient and patient and patient, and then you're sawn in half at the end. Think of Jeremiah. He was beaten and put in stocks, then put in prison. In the end of his life, he's put into a pit. As I was reading through Isaiah, or Jeremiah 38 this week, it said, There's no water in the pit, just mud. So he sank in the mud. That's his life. As a prophet of God, someone who's speaking on behalf of God, this is what happens to him. But he says, consider the prophets and the patience and the steadfastness that they, that they displayed. Consider what they went through. You think of Isaiah and Jeremiah and what all they went through and then the next prophet's thinking, well, if they went through that, do I really want to go through that? It gets worse and worse and worse. You think about Elijah and Elisha and Amos, Daniel, faced extreme opposition by the people and by the kings. But he says, consider them. They were patient and they endured it. And then lastly, he gives the illustration of Job. He says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. His steadfastness is, is commended by him. He never cursed God. He had a wonderful wife, right? And just fantastic friends. But he remained steadfast through that. Now, Job was prone to passionate responses, right? But he remained steadfast and his, and his, God, and his trust in God never wavered. The word that James uses for the, for the patience or the steadfastness of Job is one of endurance that does not succumb under hardship. His wife was hard and his friends were hard but he remains steadfast under that. So he gives them Job as an example. People back then pitied Job for all that he went through, and we still pity Job for all that he went through, all that he lost. But we also are inspired by Job's patience as he never lost, lost trust in God during incredible hardship. So he says, consider Job and his steadfastness. Why does he remind his readers of this example? Remember, you're not alone. I'm giving you three examples. These are a small group of people of many more. But often as we go through trials, don't we think, I'm the only one going through this. No one gets what I am going through. 
and we're tempted to self-focus. But he says, look at these examples. Many more people have gone through this, and this is the way that they overcame it with the help of God. So he says, these are three pitfalls, these are three examples to consider, but then he ends with one more truth to remind them of. Jesus is compassionate, and he is merciful. He's not only coming back, but while you remain here on earth, Jesus is compassionate and merciful to you as you go through these trials. These two attributes of God point to how he responded to Job's trials specifically. He was compassionate and merciful to him, and that he allowed, only allowed it for Job's good. He limited what Satan could do, and he guided Job through his suffering. And in that way, God was incredibly merciful and compassionate to him. His wife could have been worse, possibly. His friends could have even attacked him even more and more, but he limited what Satan could do, and he limited his circumstances, and he guided Job through his suffering. And similar to Job, while we are, as the church, can surround our brothers and sisters in Christ as they go through challenging times of their life, the ultimate help does come from our compassionate and merciful God. And he reminds them of that. As you're going through this, remember God. He is there. He cares for you. As I was reading these verses, all I could think of was Hebrews chapter 4. And he says, Jesus went through all these same things. He's a compassionate high priest for you. And so you can come boldly before his throne because he cares for you. As we endure these trials, as he finishes this, this book up, remember that God is compassionate and he is merciful to us. He not only knows what you're experiencing, he has felt what you're experiencing as he lived here on earth in the form of Jesus. He's compassionate. He is merciful to us. He is not here to harm us, but he is here as a present, present guide to help us through these trials. He will not give us more than we can endure. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians. He will, not, he will not give us more than we can endure, but rather he's a help to us through these trials for those who trust in him. So he tells them these are two truths. Jesus is coming back, but until that day he is merciful and he is compassionate. So trust him through this. So as we finish up, think through this. Ask, ask God to use the Spirit to help us to change our mindset about trials. So often we think, I want to get this over with. But change our mindset about that. As believers, we can change our mindset by the, by the Spirit's help. Second of all, resolve with God's help to remain steadfast under these trials. To learn from examples of those who endure trials patiently both biblical and in our present life, to look around. We're not the only ones going through this. He gives good examples in this passage. And then lastly, to remember that God is for us in these trials. He is compassionate. He's merciful. He's loving. He cares for us. He doesn't leave us on an island alone saying, you've, you've worked your way out of this trial. But he's there. He cares. And he'll provide mercy and, and compassion for us. I love these last verses that Peter writes but may the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory by, Jesus, by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God, I do thank you that you are the God who helps us. 
that you don't simply leave us on this earth alone after we've been changed by the gospel to simply figure life out. But you are a God who's right there with us, who cares for us, who demonstrates incredible mercy, incredible compassion, who gives us his grace. Lord, we thank you for James and for the reminder of this book, so clear to our everyday life. Lord, we are, we are prone to wander, we're prone to be double-minded, to trust in you some days, and then to, when days come where are more challenging, we simply trust in ourselves and then we fail. But Lord, you are a God who's compassionate even those and gives us grace and forgives. We thank you for, the, for these verses as we observed this morning, that you are a God who while we are here on earth, you demonstrate such help to us. You give us the spirit to guide us. But Lord, you are coming back. As Christians, we long for that day when you do return for us to make things right. We live in a world that is broken. But we long for the day when you come back to make things right, to make things the way they, are, they originally were. But until that day, may the Spirit help us to be steadfast, unwavering, to be patient. And when challenging days do come, may our hope in you, may our trust in you never waver. Lord, we pray for our coming week that you would use this in our lives to teach us to become more like you and your son. In Christ's name I pray, amen.